Welcome to the We Are Calvary podcast, where our mission is to share Jesus and help people experience life change. Thank you so much for listening. Here's this week's message. Well, good morning, church. Why don't you stand to your feet for the reading of the word? So grateful to have you joining us this morning. If you're a guest to our church, welcome. We're glad that you're here. These are the moments in our services where we come around the scriptures. We believe that the Bible is the inspired word of God. We believe it is relevant for us today, so we take these moments every single week as a community to come around the scriptures to learn more about who God is, learn more about who Jesus is and how are we called to respond with our lives to the saving message of Jesus Christ and learn to walk with the spirit of God each and every day. And so we're honored to get to have these moments as we're in a series entitled Summer in the Psalms. We're gonna be in Psalm 32 today. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open there. If not, that's okay. We'll have the verses on the screen. This is a Psalm of David. Let's begin to read it together. Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered, Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them and in whose spirit is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this moment and this opportunity. And Lord, even right now, we just take a moment to be still before you, to quiet our hearts, to quiet our minds, to remove any impure motives from this moment, to draw our hearts to the reality that you are a living and active God who wants to speak to our hearts today. And so we acknowledge that reality. And we say, come. Come, Holy Spirit, and do what it is that you would see fitting for this time. In your precious name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated this morning. Growing up in Southern California, one of the things that myself and my cousins loved to do was to go in the ocean. My aunt and uncle, they have a house in Oxnard, which is near Ventura, and it's pretty close to being on the beach. So we would take moments going to their house to visit, and then all the cousins, we'd get in our swimsuits and we would run into the ocean. Now, one thing that you have to acknowledge and realize when you're swimming in the ocean is the reality of what is called undercurrents. And undercurrents, if you don't know what it is, basically there are these wave patterns that are taking place under the surface that you cannot see, but as you wade in the water and as you swim, if you're not careful, you will realize that you begin to drift. And so what you need to do is before you enter into the ocean, you look to the shore and you find a point to fixate on. For us, it was Pat Sajak's house. We were told that the Wheel of Fortune guy had a house right there on the ocean front. And so we would find Pat's house and we would all know that this is our area. 
And then again, as we would begin to swim and as we'd begin to boogie board and as we would begin to hang out in the waves, we would realize that we would start to drift. So then you have to swim back to Pat's house. And then you'd play a little bit more and then a few minutes later, you gotta come back. And there's this constant process of coming back to that fixed point. Now I think that is a very particular and perfect metaphor for the Christian life in our contemporary age. This reality of these these undercurrents, you may not be able to see them, but you have to acknowledge and to realize that the culture that is surrounding us is filled with undercurrents. Undercurrents that are made up of numerous secular ideologies, the temptation for political idolatry, wide-scale moral compromise and the idolization of the self. And while the world around us as believers in the way of Jesus expects for us to conform to these patterns, to surrender to their vision of the good life, God, who created the heavens and the earth, who created humanity, expects for those that he created to live within his patterns, to live within his creative order for life and life more abundant, to surrender to his vision of what the scriptures would call holiness. Look with me to the apostle Peter. He says it in this way, as obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance, but just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. A little bit later on in Peter's letter, he says it like this, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. So obviously there's a clear scriptural mandate for the church, for believers in Jesus to walk in holiness, but if we're honest with ourselves, we need to realize that it is not uncommon for Christians to begin to drift into the sinful patterns that have been made normalized in a sinful society. We ourselves have bought into many of the same idols as those who do not profess faith in Christ. We too have compromised God's moral vision. We too idolize the self. We too give into patterns of sin. We fall into a pattern of life that author and pastor Joshua Porter calls integration and deintegration. We have moments where we're integrating spiritual realities into our life. We're beginning to see spiritual formation take place. We're starting to realize that the old self is beginning to die and we're stepping into the beautiful reality of reflecting Christ to the world around us. But then there's moments of deintegration where we once took some steps forward in our faith, becoming more like Jesus, and then the moments where we sit back and we think, gosh, what's taking place? The Apostle Paul speaks about this in Galatians chapter five, this war that takes place between the spirit and the flesh in the believer. And while we might have this tendency to drift, to integrate and to deintegrate, and while it seems to be quite common, so should our practice of confession and a swift return to God's vision for holiness. See, I believe that we will live into God's vision for holiness when we learn to practice healthy patterns of confession and repentance. 
Who's excited to be at church today? (laughs) So what we're gonna do is we're gonna look at this passage of scripture in three parts. Part number one will be the happiness of forgiveness. The second one will be the misery of sin. And the third one, a pathway of repentance. Now Psalm 32 is a wisdom psalm. It's also known as a penitential psalm. It's believed that this psalm is deeply connected to Psalm 51, and like Psalm 51, has its origins in David's response to God following his infamous affair with Bathsheba, the conceiving of their child together, and then David's plot to murder her husband. And in response to his inevitable beginning to be real with what transpired and to yield to the words of the prophet Nathan who calls out his sin, in reflection, he pens these words. He says, blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them and in whose spirit there is no deceit. In the original language, that term blessed can be translated to happy. Happy is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Happy is the one who sin the Lord does not count against them and whose spirit is, there is no deceit. The experience of happiness can actually be deeply connected to our willingness to be real about the sin in our lives. Now, that may not make sense, but that's the reality of the biblical story here. Interestingly enough, the world is gonna have many visions for how we ought to experience happiness, and then we go to the scriptures, and this is gonna seem a little bit different. Now, in these verses, there is three verbs that express the absolute of divine forgiveness. The first one is that phrase, are forgiven. This is the act of removal of sin, the remembrance of sin no more. The second one, are covered. This is the gracious act of atonement by which the sinner is then reconciled to God. And the third one, does not count against, expresses God's attitude toward those who are forgiven as justified. And these beautiful words, they begin to create a framework for our understanding of the foreshadowing of the ultimate work of Christ's death on the cross. See, humanity's ability to experience happiness of forgiveness is accomplished through faith in the person and the work of Jesus. Again, the world is gonna have so many different ways that you ought to experience happiness, so many different life scripts for you to follow, yet we who believe in the Bible, who believe in the scriptures, who believe in Jesus will always come back to say your ultimate happiness will be found when you realize the forgiveness you have experienced through Christ's death. That when you are real with the reality that all have sinned, fall short of the glory of God, that you will then be able to realize the deep sense of happiness at a soul level something that the world cannot take away from you. And this idea of forgiveness, the idea of repentance, this idea of confession, this idea of what Christ did on the cross, it is the main theme of the New Testament. Look at what the Apostle Paul says to the church in Ephesus. In him, being in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. Or look to Paul's letter to the church in Colossae. 
for he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves, in whom we have what? Redemption and the forgiveness of sins. I mean, this theme in Psalm 32, it is so on the forefront of Paul's mind that he even brings it into his letter to the church in Rome. He quotes the verses that we just read. In Romans chapter four, verses seven and eight, quoting Psalm 32, blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against them. So as we look to this text, if you want the experience of happiness, which let's just be honest, we as human beings would love a little bit more happiness. What if part of your experience of happiness is found in the practice of reflecting on forgiveness? I mean, it is so easy to run to the thing that will instantly gratify you. But what if we ought to actually spend more time in our days reflecting on the beauty of Christ, reflecting on the beauty of the cross, spending those intimate moments with God, being reimagining the brutality of what he had to go through for your behalf? What if in the midst of that, we would begin to experience a happiness and a rest because of our redemption? Now from here, David lends into this idea of the misery of sin. He says, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as it is in the heat of summer. Friends, what we must realize is that our soul demands to be in communion and in the presence of God. I mean, go back to the beginning of the biblical story. Go back to the garden when everything was perfect. What made it perfect was the reality that humanity could be in right relationship and in the presence of God. Your spirit, your soul demands that place. And the problem is when we engage in sin and do not walk into a pathway of redemption and confession and seeking forgiveness, what will begin to be inhibited is your communion with Christ. Something that we need to understand, we've talked about this in the past, but you know, Paul to the church in Corinth has this really beautiful portion where he places humanity in three categories. He talks about the natural person, the person who has yet to put faith in Jesus. He then talks about the spiritual person, someone who is walking in communion with Christ. And then he has this middle person. This is actually how he quantifies the church in Corinth. He says, you are neither a natural person nor a spiritual person. You are what I'm gonna call a carnal believer. A carnal believer is one who is, yes, has the position of being in Christ, has had their ultimate sins justified, have a future eternity that is secured, but they have inhibited, because of their unconfessed sin, this deep communion with Christ. And that's where your soul longs to be. So if you are a believer in this room and you are not experiencing that sense of peace, may there be some unconfessed sin in your life. Like David, might you be experiencing that what feels like that heavy hand of God. Because the thing we have to understand is when you come into relationship with Jesus, God loves you too much to see you continue to walk out your sin. Whether we want to admit it or not, there is a thing called biblical discipline. And I, we don't like discipline. 
because discipline doesn't feel good and we are living in a world and a society that is obsessed with feeling good. But the reality is sometimes it will not feel good in the moment, but the long-term effects of the discipline will help you to form into the image of Jesus, which should ultimately be your passion and your heart's desire. The problem is with the church, many of us, that is not our heart. We would rather feel comfortable than actually conform to the person of Christ. And so we have to acknowledge that reality. Yes, we might have the position of being in Christ, yes, but are we able to commune with him? Are we engaging at that level? And so ultimately this leads into a pathway for forgiveness. David says, then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Even in the midst of him feeling the weight of his sin, ultimately what released that weight was his willingness to be real and to be honest and begin to confess that reality. Now when it comes to the sin in our lives, I think that the church has a tendency to have two reactions. The first one is we overreact to one's sin. That is not to discredit the seriousness of sin, but how many of you have been maybe caught in sin, someone calls out your sin, but the way that they didn't, didn't quite lead you to repentance, it led you to hurt and pain and sadness. See, we have to be cautious not to overreact to sin. Life change takes place over time. There is a patience in the midst of this. So we cannot overreact, but also we cannot underreact. And from my perspective, it's the second that the church in America has an issue with. Maybe there were times 15, 20 years ago where the tendency was to overreact. Our tendency now is to underreact. We just let it all go under the rug. And it is inhibiting communion with Christ. It is inhibiting fulfillment of mission. And it has to be something that we start to acknowledge and to realize, okay, I don't want to overreact. I don't want to underreact. I want to biblically react. So we need a pathway we need a practice. We need something for us to follow after. And so what I want to talk about for our remaining time is the makeup of a biblical reaction. The makeup of this potential pathway. Now, the first two parts of this you might recognize because we talked about it a number of months ago. I gave a message and we had it around the theme of becoming a discipling community becoming a discipling church, a discipling culture here at the church, which began with a shared group identity, the ability, or sorry, began with joy and love, ended in a shared group identity and correction. And I think that the pathway to forgiveness, we have to come back to those two ideas, that it all begins with a shared group identity. We must be able to answer this question, what kind of people are we? As followers of the way of Jesus, what type of people are we? Also, how do the people of God act? 
Now, this is challenging in the world that we live in because we have a culture and society right now that is really redefining what is right and what is wrong. But we always, as the followers of the way of Jesus, have to come back to, okay, that might be what's going on out there, but we actually have limitations and a firm foundation and a reality in which we are called to. So what type of people are we? And how are we supposed to act? And as we come and we commit to that shared group identity, we then lean into the ability to have healthy correction. But you have to have the shared identity first. You have to be willing to go to Jesus' teachings and the Sermon on the Mount and begin to understand what was his manifesto for humanity. You have to go to the writings of the apostles in the New Testament and begin to realize what it was it that the Holy Spirit was wanting to speak through them that we could begin to gravitate around. You've got to go to the moral teachings in the Old Testament. And then with that has to be the willingness to, with proper, pure motivation, to provide healthy correction towards one another. Now, what might that look like? Because I bet every single one of us can imagine what it should not look like. Or you probably have experienced the heavy-handedness of correction that did not lead you to repentance. Jim Wilder from the book The Other Half of Church, which is where this idea of a shared group identity and correction comes from, he provides this statement. I think it's beautiful, and it might be worth even writing down. Imagine that you go towards someone who has been engaging in a sinful act. It finally came out. The reality of what's gone on. Or maybe you know about it, but they don't know you know about it. So now you have to have that awkward conversation where you sit down and say, hey. But imagine this is what came out of your mouth. You have forgotten who you are. Let me remind you of who we are. We are people who fill in the blank. We are people who don't give in to patterns of lust, but we learn to walk in agape love. We are people who do not just live into patterns of being angry, but we learn to have self-control. We're not people who practice greed, but practice generosity. We are not unfaithful, we live into fidelity. We're not people who envy, we actually learn to be content. We are not people who are apathetic, we have a zealousness for the things of God. So you have forgotten who you are, but let me remind you who we are. We are people who, and I would love to help you with this. That is a different approach. Now from there, hopefully the individual can experience conviction a type of healthy guilt. Can I just tell you something? Guilt is a gift. It's good to feel guilty. I'm longing for the day where my children learn to feel guilty when they do bad things. That is gonna be a (laughs) precious moment in my household. Guilt is important. We have to have that experience where we go, ooh, I shouldn't have done that. That was not right. But it's important to understand the reality of guilt. See, guilt makes this statement connected to it. I did something wrong. And it's okay to say that. It's important to feel guilt. And that feeling of guilt should hopefully lead to confession and lead to repentance. 
which ultimately opens the door for us to re-engage with communion with Christ, which is what the longing of your soul desires to have. And ultimately, this leads to our ability to be consecrated. Consecrated is a biblical word that just basically means to be set apart for special use. What you need to realize and you need to acknowledge is the reality that your forgiveness of sin, your willingness to be in communion with Christ, your consecration is not just for you, it is for the sake of others. Listen to the words of David in Psalm 51. He makes this point very clear to us. He says, create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Now key in on verse 13. Then, then, then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. If you read Psalm 51, those first 12 verses are just David repenting and confessing and being real with his sin, the reality of what has transpired. And then he makes that beautiful realization, now, now I can engage in the mission. We are consecrated, we are set apart for the sake of others. Uh, this is a conviction that I've had this past week. The mission of God is not accomplished through the church obtaining or holding to some type of institutional authority. I think there was a time in our country where the church did have this deep sense of institutional authority. People respected the church. They respected the position of pastor. That was a time, and unfortunately, it is not now. Now, you can have whatever opinion you want on that. I think in a lot of ways we did it to ourselves based upon how we acted, the hypocrisy oftentimes found in the church. But the reality is the mission of God will not be accomplished through us, again, becoming this institutional authority. It will come when God releases spiritual authority on those who walk in holiness and daily practice what it means to walk with the Spirit in order to be formed into the image of Christ for the sake of others. So that is God's vision for the church right now, to release spiritual authority on those who are willing to confess sin, to be consecrated, to be set apart, to then go forth into the world. Which is why this pathway is so important. It's why it's important for us to do it well. It's why we have to understand how to engage in healthy correction in the community. Because the reality is, Unfortunately, at times, we do unhealthy correction. And I wanna work through this pattern for you because again, you need to see the opposite to understand the way that God would have for us. Again, it begins with a shared group identity, but then there is unhealthy correction. I love this uh, actually from my uncle John Dawson who wrote a book. He says this statement, the challenge we face is to communicate truth without judging the individual to uphold standards without taking up the satanic pattern of condemnation and accusation. Isn't that interesting? You might be wanting to go and to correct someone, but if you do so with a heart posture and an attitude of condemnation and accusation, you are acting more like Satan than you are Christ. And that should convict us to the core 
Because that is just so how the enemy would work. You're actually trying to walk out a biblical principle and then the way you do it actually is living into satanic patterns. That is brutal. So we have to learn how to do it the right way. See, unhealthy correction is when we are told there is a problem, but there's no relational solution provided. How many of you have experienced that? You know what? Okay, you can raise your hand. Sorry, I can I love the honesty. You've experienced that. Someone came to you and said, hey, this is wrong, fix it. And then they go. Now, where does that leave you? I would probably put money on that's probably not gonna lead to conviction that is led by guilt. It's probably gonna be conviction that leads to shame. There's a difference between guilt and shame. Guilt says, I did something bad. Shame says, I am bad. I did something wrong, I am wrong. Do you see the difference there? See, the reality is when you start to feel shame, it will not lead you to confession, it will lead you to cover. You will cover your sin. You will begin to hide. Look at the reality of what took place in the garden. What did Adam and Eve do? They felt shame, so they covered. We do the same thing today. But the problem is, looking at the wisdom literature, whoever conceals, this is out of Proverbs, whoever conceals their sins does not prosper. But the one who confesses and renounces them finds mercy. But again, if we have gone through an unhealthy moment of being corrected, and we begin to feel shame because there's no relationship connected to it, there's no patience, there's no long-term vision for life change taking place over time. We cover, which means instead of then being able to have communion again with Christ based upon our confession, we don't experience communion, we experience condemnation. And what condemnation does, it will cause you to isolate. And then this vicious cycle will continue. I feel shame. I'm attempting to cover. I feel condemned. I feel isolated. Oftentimes somewhere in that cycle will come consumption. I have to find something to consume in order to feel a sense of relief. Drugs, alcohol, sex. And that vicious cycle will continue and continue. See, Dietrich Bonhoeffer says it like this. Sin demands to have a man by himself. It withdraws him from the community. The more isolated a person is, the more destructive will be the power of sin over him. Sin wants to remain unknown. It shuns the light. In the darkness of the unexpressed, it poisons the whole being of a person. And so may it not be so for this body of believers. May it not be so that we are flippant with how we correct one another. Again, I don't wanna have a culture where we overreact. I don't wanna have a culture where we underreact. I wanna do this the way that God told us to do it. And there needs to be a deep patience for one another. That's the problem with this is, see, our, we want everything instant. It's such the issue with our time. 
Everything has to be fast. Everything has to be fast. Everything has to be fast. And then we try to bring that into spiritual realities. Guess what? God didn't design it that way. It takes place over time. It is a slow process. Can we be patient in relationship with one another as we walk them through the reality of what it means to come back? I heard something on a podcast this past, probably a month ago, and it has just stuck with me. And so I wanna share it with you. And maybe it'll have the same effect. Because here's the reality. We can do a message like this. We can talk about confession. We can talk about repentance. We can talk about covering sin. The reality is there are many of us in this room that this is our reality. We are in the moment of covering. We're in the moment of not being real. Even as you listen to me talk, you're thinking, yeah, that's a really cute concept. There's no way it works in reality. And can I just be honest with you? I understand your fear. Because see, here's the difficult part. All of this looks good, and then you throw in people. And everything's awesome. Every system looks great on a computer screen until we start actually being part of it. Which is why we have to be so careful and so cautious and so passionately driven by God's vision for this. And so here's the statement. Resonance is not the same as obedience. Now just think about that for a second. Resonance is not the same as obedience. How many times have you come into this room and you have the experience like, oh, I, yeah, that's good. You tell them, pastor, tell them about their sin. Tell them how they're not aligning with the way of Jesus. That I resonate with that. Okay, but that's different than actually walking out in obedience. I, again, I think that's a, probably a huge issue in the church right now. We have been confident to just resonate with truth and do nothing with it. And so what if we actually stepped into obedience with a message like this? What if even right now, I know many of you because I have had the experience every single service this weekend of like the Holy Spirit bringing to names of individuals where I know what is taking place in their life. I know it's not aligning with the way of Jesus, but oh my goodness, it is so much easier to underreact. It is so much easier because it, it could create tension. They may not like that. What if it affects our relationship? You're right, what if it does for the better? We always have this sense that the negative is what's going to happen. What about the positive? What if they could then experience freedom like they've never had before? What if it would transform their relationship with their spouse? What if it would begin to break through generational situations that have taken place in their family of origin? Who knows what could happen, but we've gotta be willing to be obedient. Or maybe for yourself right now, you know the thing that from the minute I said confession that you need to confess of, but you've covered it. You've covered it for so long in your head. You're like, I don't even know what would happen if I released this one. And can I just be real with you? Confession will not mean there's not consequence. There is consequence to our sin. That is the reality of how everything works. So I'm not gonna sit here and say that if you confess it all today that everything's gonna get better immediately. 
In fact, it will probably get worse before it gets better because your spouse will experience pain and hurt. There might be a sense of betrayal, whatever the situation might be. I'm not gonna name it for you. This is what the spirit can do right now is work it out in your own heart. But what if on the other side of this is a beautiful opportunity for the church to walk in holiness and purity, to be consecrated for the mission of God in our time? Listen, I don't know why God decided that this was our time. I can pick a few other times that seemed less complicated, but there's also been a lot of more horrific times. But for whatever reason, in this time and in this moment, he called us together. So let's walk in holiness. Let's walk in purity. Let's align with this beautiful reality of what we have in Christ Jesus and let's move forward. So what I wanna do is I want us to try to create some space just to practice this a little bit. Now, so many people are so nervous, just don't freak out. (laughs) Turn to your neighbor and tell them all the terrible things you did yesterday. (laughs) Don't tempt me, there's actually biblical precedent for that. Let me read it to you. Uh, Therefore, the brother of Jesus says, James, therefore confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. No kidding aside, that might be the most profound thing you do today is to turn to someone and just say, listen, this is what's going on. This is what I'm experiencing. Would you love me through it? And so I just wanna take a few minutes. I just wanna create some space. We're gonna be still, we're gonna be quiet. We're not gonna leave the room just yet. And we're gonna say, come Holy Spirit. Um, if If you need to sit in your seats, that's great. If you want to have your hands out in a posture of just openness to the Lord, that's beautiful. Uh, Last night, we had a a woman come down and just kneel at the front, just a sign of like, okay, Lord, I'm just gonna physically with my body respond. Whatever you need to do in this moment. But whatever it is, make sure that you do. Don't just resonate. Be obedient. So we say, come Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to partner with us in sharing Jesus and helping people experience life change, you can support our mission by clicking the link in the description. If this message has impacted you, please subscribe and share. To learn more, visit wearecalvary.com. We'll see you back next week.